Welcome to the On The Mark podcast, where I'll help you become more well-rounded financially at the intersection of real estate and personal finance. As a 20-year mortgage industry veteran with over $2 billion in fundings and an avid real estate investor, I'll help you learn how to build and protect wealth and pass it on to future generations in a way that's easy for all to understand. Okay, thank you all for joining us today and welcome to the On The Mark Financial Forum and podcast. Um, We're going to have a great session today with my good friend, Anthony Davenport, who I've known since high school. Uh, We go way back. Um, And for those of you who uh, are watching, um, uh, we would love for you guys to take a photo, uh, post it on social and tag us. And when you do that, we will enter you to win a copy of Anthony's uh, best-selling book called Your Score. So Anthony, we'd love to uh, see on the screen here and um, uh, introduce yourself and and tell us what you do. Yeah, thanks, Mark. This is so much fun to to do this with you always. I always say that a good old friend is someone who I've known since before my beard was gray. But with (laughs) you, I can say I've known you since before I could grow a beard at all. So so thanks for having me on. I started real young, so. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So yeah, we, uh, we started our business in the most unusual of circumstances. I was a, a loan officer, not nearly the level that that you are, but I did okay. And when the real estate crash happened, I lost everything. And I realized that if someone like me with an excellent credit score and you know good money in the bank could lose everything, it was going to happen to many other people. And I happen to know a lot about credit at the time. So shortly thereafter in 2010, I started Regal Credit Management, and we're now in Inc. 5000, fastest growing company. Amazing. And you guys are operating in cities all over the world now, right? I see uh, I see a, uh, an image of a building in London. So uh, you guys are, are now expanded over to Europe as well. Yeah, people don't believe it, but it's the same system and the same game in many parts of the world. So we're in New York, LA, and London now. Amazing. Well, good for you. You guys have done a great job and you do some amazing things that we'll, uh, we'll tap into your expertise on. So, so I wanted to start today's session a little different than, than others that we've done, um, because I think there's a lot of credit myths out there that we've got to bust. And so I'm going to ask you for a one-word answer, true or false. Okay, I'm going to read you some questions. <clears throat> so Credit bureaus are nonprofit organizations whose mission is to serve public interests. True or false? That is false. Ah, interesting. Credit scores are identical on consumer and mortgage types of reports. So if a consumer runs their own report versus one that a mortgage lender might run. Ooh, that's extremely false. Extremely false. Okay. Uh, you have 45 days to run multiple inquiries for mortgages uh, from the time that you run the first one, and the credit bureaus will treat it as one inquiry. True. True. So I think people get very nervous about running their credit often, so we'll talk more about that later. Um, paying off collections and charge-offs improves your credit in the short term. Ooh, false. False. That's a big misconception. Uh, large delinquent balances. So if you have a past due balance of, let's say, $1,000 versus a, a copay from your doctor that was reported late of $10, 
the large balance affects your score more than the smaller balance because it's not as much money. False. False. Another big myth. Credit bureaus update their records in real time. False. <laughs> Very false. Uh, if you co-sign uh, and the primary account holder makes a late payment, it won't affect your score because it's not your account. Oh, false. False. Don't ever co-sign people, please. Um, when you have limited credit history, your credit score moves more significantly with every action or uh, change in the account. Oh, that's true. That's true. Not using credits gives you, not using any credit activity gives you a better score because you don't need to borrow money. False. False. Using services such as LifeLock protects your credit and identity. Oh, you know, I hate that one. <laughs> That's false. <laughs> that is as false as it gets. And we, we're going to talk a little bit later about one of the services that Anthony's company provides, which... Uh, um, you'll see why it's very, very different than uh, companies like LifeLock. So, um, so thank you, Anthony. You've you've passed, I think, but you're the uh, <laughs> one giving the answers and the expert. So uh, you'll have to grade yourself. But from my knowledge, I think you answered all those correctly, and uh, and hopefully we've given people some insight into a lot of the credit myths that are out there. I think people really don't understand how the system works, how it's set up, um, how certain things are judged. You know, so we're going to go through some details, um, but I thought maybe we could start with just an explanation of how the system works, the three credit bureaus, what they do, and and how they operate. Yeah, that's great. Go for it. Tell tell us your your thoughts on on how that works. Yeah, so the three credit bureaus they call themselves bureaus because it makes them sound more governmental, but they're very much for profit institutions. And because of lobbyists, they have all these special abilities that they really shouldn't. So when you turned 18, which was a few years after we had met, did you get a letter in the mail that said, hey, Mark, this is TransUnion. We'd like to collect information on you and then sell it. And are you OK with that? I don't remember no. getting that letter. No, you, you didn't get that letter. Neither did any of us. But essentially, the three bureaus are allowed to do exactly that, whether we ask them to or not. And. What people don't realize is that, let's say you subscribe to credit monitoring through one of them, you're not really paying customer that they care about. They make the overwhelming majority of their money off of collecting information and then selling it about you. So you are essentially the product. They are collecting and selling data on you, and that's how they make their money. Right. So and you have to think about everything Everything we're going to state after this is going to put that in context that you're the product, you know, you, you are, you are the chicken in the buckets. If this is KFC, uh, they really don't care about you and what you have to say because you're literally just going in the oven. Yeah. Well, you're, you're basically their data that they use to be able to sell to other firms to tell them, Hey, this person's interested in doing X, Y, and Z. So one of the one of the big hot topics in the mortgage industry right now is exactly what you talked about. It's called it's what we call in the industry a trigger lead. So one of the applications of what Anthony just mentioned is when uh, when a lender runs a formal credit report, um, the credit bureaus sell that information that hey this person over here hey they just ran their credit 
right? They sell that from what I've heard from the lobbyist organizations who are really fighting hard to get rid of this issue in our industry. They can sell that to up to 12 additional creditors. Um, and each 12 can basically now has the right to harass you. And so um, uh, I was actually listening to another podcast about this, and it was another uh, lender that that I know through the industry who was saying that they tested it on one of their employees um, who was going to be applying for a loan with them. And so they ran the credit just to see what happened, and they counted the number of inquiries that they got. Um, with all of the, the technology that exists now to do automated emails and robocalls and texting and all these things, this poor girl got 147 solicitations in one week um, just by running her credit with her own company yeah. <laughs> for her own mortgage. So there's a big lobbying uh, effort um, within our industry to shut that down because it's unsolicited. Nobody wants to get 150 inquiries for uh, for mortgages when they've already basically selected a mortgage company that they're working with. So that's a that's a perfect example. And there is something that people can do about it. It's called opt-out pre-screen. So if you're going to take down anything on this session, please write this website down, optoutprescreen.com. Um, Anthony, maybe you can talk about what, what they do. Yeah. So the, the beautiful thing about optoutprescreen.com, other than the, the name doesn't really roll off the tongue, right? But right. <laughs> it's it's such a special secret weapon to tell the credit bureaus, do not sell my data. Everyone should do it. Everyone should use it. It takes seconds to do online. However, I recommend printing out the form and then mailing it in because it lasts longer if you do that. But you still do have to renew it you know, every now and then. But it tells the credit bureaus, don't sell my data. That is the very first thing that we do when clients sign up for our services. It stops a lot of the junk mail that comes to your, your way. It does. And and I signed up for it myself about maybe six months ago when I first heard about the website. And I think it when you do it online, it lasts for five years. So it's not something you have to renew all the time, but it's definitely something you'll want to. And you'll probably notice when it lapses. Oh, yeah. 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 You'll know. You, you don't need to send a calendar reminder. Right. They'll let you know. Exactly. Um, so, so that's an interesting piece of what's going on in our industry. And I'm sure it, it applies to any type of credit. So if you open a credit card, they're probably again, selling that information. So sometimes we get clients who call us and say, you know, all of a sudden I'm getting all these solicitations. Did, did you sell my information? No, uh, we did not. Um, it wouldn't certainly wouldn't be in our best interest to connect you with, uh, 150 times with people who do the same thing that we do. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting thing and, and a pretty easy solution. So again, optoutprescreen.com. It's free. It's very easy. It literally took me 30 seconds to sign up. I signed up everyone in my family that has an, uh, an email address and a social. And, um, and so far it's been crickets, um, which is great. Um, so I want to also talk about like the different components of a credit score and maybe how much each one affects the, the score itself, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that, especially when it comes to inquiries and how much the inquiries affect the score. So maybe you can give us an overview of the different components and, and how much of an impact they have on a score. Yeah. So the biggest impact to your credit score is going to be your payment history. Simply put, whether you pay your bills on time, but that's only 35% of your score. 
So the other 65% has absolutely positively nothing to do with whether you pay your bills on time, which is shocking. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when people f- fall into financial difficulty, like right now, there's a writer's strike impacting a lot of people in Hollywood. I always say to them, focus on the 65% that you can't control if you can't control that 35%. But then the next biggest chunk is the part that causes the most, like it has the most misconceptions and and it's misunderstood more than anything. 30% comes down to your credit card debt, essentially. So the funky thing about this is they're not looking at your total lines of credit altogether because that would make sense. They can't do that. So let's say you have you know, $50,000 worth of outstanding credit on your credit cards. It doesn't matter how that breakdown is, is, you know, looked at in terms of the limits. They look at it per card. So you could have a card with a $10,000 limit and no balance. And then you could have a store credit card with a $500 limit and have $500 on it. And now you are perceived as a huge credit risk. And it impacts your credit almost as much as if you missed a payment altogether. Right. But if you had that same $500 debt on the $10,000 card, it would be a different story. Exactly right. So it doesn't make sense, but they're they're looking at signs of financial distress. And they say that if you're maxed out on a card or close, you're utilizing you know too much of it, that you're now going to be viewed as likely of defaulting. But it's ridiculous. But That's a huge part. And then the other components don't matter quite as much. 15% matters about the length of the credit history that you have. You know, they want to know that you're not new to this credit game. Uh, I always, you know, in my seminars, I say this like your friendships, you know, people who've known you for a year, they can vouch for you and it, it matters a bit. But someone who's known you since before you were chubby, old and gray, like Mark, you know you you know me before i got chubby man so Uh, so that that matters a whole lot more and it's the same thing with your creditors so they want to see that you've had it for a long time 10 percent, they also want to see just a variety of credit they want to see that you can handle a mortgage an auto loan a credit card you know maybe like an installment loan like a student loan they they like to see a variety of different types of credit And then the final 10% is usually the part that keeps people up at night that shouldn't, which is the inquiries. You know, they they really don't weigh in that much. I've never looked at someone's credit file and said, oh, the things that's impacting your credit the most in a negative way are your inquiries. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, you could apply for something like a mortgage when an unlimited number of banks over a 45-day time period they lump that into just one inquiry, which typically impacts someone's score by zero to two points. Right. I mean, I, I always tell clients when they ask me about that, I said the, the wind could be blowing in a different direction. It'll affect you more than the inquiry will, you yeah. know, because every so so correct me if I'm wrong, but most creditors update their records once a month when the statement is issued. Is that accurate? So mostly. So they, they update it typically about every 30 days, but it's really up to them to decide to do it and they have to pay each time they do it. So it could be as long as 45 days, but it's not necessarily when the statement's issued, they each have their own date that they report to the credit bureaus. And in some cases it changes per person because 
I think it's Discover will let you pick, uh, you know, what date they that you you want to have to pay your balance or whatever. So they they typically pick it, and you could call them and ask them what day do you report to the credit bureaus to find out for sure. Right. Okay. Um, and we do have a question coming in, but we will definitely get to that. All the questions at the end. So thank you for posting that. We'll we'll definitely get to that. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just interesting. There's so many misconceptions about how the whole system works. But um, when we're while we're talking about inquiries, what about like a quote unquote soft inquiry? People talk about hard versus soft inquiries. Can you yeah. explain the difference um, and and include like a consumer inquiry in there and talk about which ones affect this the score technically speaking that ten percent and which ones don't? Yeah. So the hard inquiries are the ones that count. Towards this 10%, but that's going to be when you actually apply for financing or credit of some type. So when you apply for a mortgage, when you apply for a credit card, when you apply for a student loan, those each count as inquiries, hard inquiries. But if you're just looking to pull your credit from like Equifax or TransUnion or some sort of credit monitoring service, LifeLock, if, if you have to throw them in. If you pull it from them, it counts as a soft inquiry, which means it doesn't actually impact your credit at all. But there's a pretty not so friendly explanation of why those inquiries don't count. Let's see. Tell us, please. Well, that's because those aren't real credit reports, as you alluded right. to in your true false. So. Right. Exactly. You know, I would love for you to expand on that because um, a lot of people think, oh, I'm pulling my credit. It's the same as what mortgage reports are. Maybe you can talk about what the differences are between a consumer report that somebody can pull for themselves and what a mortgage lender, for example, or a creditor might pull on their end. I know this is almost criminal. And I was really pressured when I was creating my book because I wanted to show an example of how a real credit report is laid out, the one that you get as a banker versus what people see as a consumer. And the credit bureaus are like, we don't want you to do that. And I went to the lawyers at my publisher and said, can they block me? And they're like, no. I said, well, then let's do it. So <laughs> what page is it on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I'm sure that everyone remembers these commercials from a few years back where they show someone who confidently walks into like an auto you know, buying place and is like, I know my score. I know that I have the best score out there. So give me the best rate and I want everything you got. And uh, the credit bureaus actually paid fines of $15 million a piece for ads like that because they were advertising that the reports that you buy from them are the same as that they provide to the banks. And the biggest difference between them is for one thing, what lenders get is a report that goes back seven years. These consumer reports only go back two years. And in many cases, they're not using the real score that matters. The only score that matters is a FICO score, F-I-C-O. If you see any other sort of score that's included in that, it's a Mickey Mouse number. It's, Can you give us some examples of ones like the names of other ones that you've heard? Because I think people yeah, yeah. So see real, these, they don't really know what it is. Yeah. If, if you read the fine print for some of the credit bureaus, for example, they're like, well, this is not really a FICO score. It's like a vantage score, which is like some sort of approximation of their own, or they call it like IntelliScore or TransUnion score or something like that. Look at the fine print 
and see if they're actually providing a FICO score. But now there's another issue to keep in mind, which is a lot of people will get their FICO score for free from you know, their credit card company or whatever. The problem again is that those FICO scores are calculated on incorrect data. They're looking at that consumer report, which only goes back two years to then generate a number. So you can't rely on that number at all either. The only number you can count on and say this is the real deal is the one that comes from your bank. But Mark, can you tell them the problem with uh, with getting that? The problem with getting the one from the bank? Yeah. Well, it depends. So if you do, a, we have the option now to do soft pulls as well as hard inquiries. When you apply for a loan on a specific property, a hard inquiry is unavoidable. You have yeah. to do it because it's required for uh, underwriting purposes, but a soft pull can now be done as well, where if we know that there's no issues with the profile, you know, we'll run that and it gives us enough information to confirm that, you know, it's a viable loan. So, um, but if, but if you run a hard inquiry, what happens is now you get the solicitation. So yeah. does that, does that not happen with consumer reports? Do they not sell that? Like if somebody runs their own report, do, can the, the credit bureaus not sell that information that somebody's running their own report, maybe inquiring about some sort of debt in the future? Yeah, no, if they're if they're only doing a soft inquiry, it's not going to trigger that whole thing to sell the information. I think it's amazing that you have the ability as a bank to say, hey, we can we can take a look and, and give you like a prequel on that because I haven't heard of any other mortgage lender that can do that. So that's that's yeah. huge. Yeah, there's a move within the industry, but I think we're one of the first, um, I, don't quote me on that, but one of the few, let's just say, because when you call a retail bank, they're basically like robots. They say, you know, oh, my my checkbox says I need to run a formal credit report and they do it. And then you get all the solicitations because they're not really thinking about the implications of what they're doing. That's really the, the reason we offer the soft pull is because of that, to try to help our clients avoid that. We tell them about the opt-out pre-screen while we're getting their authorization to pull the softball because it there is a little bit of lead time. I think it's something like five to seven days yep. before it actually shuts down some of these offers. But um, so, okay, so I want to move on a little bit to what does the ideal credit profile look like? So you talk about all the different components. So how do you build a, a profile that will give you a high score? Well, I mean, we all learned about it in school, didn't we? Or from our parents with the perfect credit Absolutely profile. Absolutely like. not. We <laughs> learned about it from this podcast, this moment right now. Let's yeah, hear exactly. So, all right, this is the secret sauce in my book. Now that now they then they hardly need to read the book, but uh, we'll make sure that there there's plenty of reasons they need to read it. There's a there's a whole lot more. <laughs> so essentially, the perfect credit profile looks like this. It has between five and seven trade lines. And a trade line is anything that reports to the credit bureaus, like a mortgage or a credit card. You want to have those open the longer, the better. A minimum of two years. If you've had an account open for like 10 years, you should never, ever close it because that's like a very good friend that can vouch for you and has known you a long time. When it comes to credit cards, you want to keep the balances low which is generally below 10% is kind of the rule of thumb, but really the lower, the better. And you also want to minimize the number of loans you're going to be applying for in a, in a like within a year or two. You don't want to be applying for a car loan and an auto, uh, I'm sorry, then a, then a mortgage and then three credit cards. Those types of things can, can start to impact your score. 
but that's that's really the gist of of how to create the perfect credit profile and you want to have it diverse you want to have you know different types of lines like i mentioned the credit card mortgage auto loan once you do that you're more likely to get yourself above that 800 score which is like the a++ level right and the the scoring models for the fico goes up to 850 but there's no way i've never in my entire 21 year career seen a score even close to that. I think the highest I ever saw was, I don't know, 825, 830, something like that. Is there any way to achieve a perfect score? No. So what's funny is, I you know, I've been doing this 13 years and I've seen a lot more credit reports than most humans should ever see in their lifetime. Hmm. The highest one I ever saw was an 823. And that was the technical writer that took our guidelines on how we work on someone's credit to get them there. And then he was like, look, I followed the guidelines and I have a 823. Still couldn't get it perfect. Yeah. uh, We had a question, actually, I'm going to bring this up now from Michael. Michael B. Thanks for the question. My mortgage was through a private bank that did not report to the credit bureaus, but I still have a current FICO score of 811. Is it possible to reach 850? No, you don't, you don't need to worry about 850. Again, you know, what's, what's become an A plus score has changed over time. Right now, it's a 740 score, and that's the middle between the three bureaus. Remember that there's three credit bureaus, so that means you get three different FICO scores, and they literally just pick the one in the middle, not the high, not the low, not the average, but literally just the one in the middle. And if you're above that 740, you're getting an A+. But I think some lenders are starting to say 780 is now like they're. Yeah, it's changed. So Fannie Mae uh, and Freddie Mac uh, adopted a new grid that determines, you know, if there are any pricing adjustments for the better or worse, depending on where you are. The maximum score for the or sorry, the minimum score for the best tier used to be 740. Now they've added more tiers on top of that. Um, so now it's 780 or higher for a Fannie Mae back loan, but not all loans are backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So different lenders and different programs have different requirements. But yeah, it has adjusted for those types of loans that kind of apply to the masses because most of the country is doing loans backed by the government. Um, yeah. That is that has changed very recently. Yeah. So above a 780, you're an A+. There's no point in aiming for an A++. It's just not going to count. It does, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't help you in any way to have, you know, if you're at 820 and you're trying so hard to push towards 830, it, it makes no difference when you're applying for credit, which is the whole purpose of having a credit score is to, to verify that you can pay your bills or that you've paid your bills in the past and developed all the different components that Anthony talked about. So the people try to strive for this really, really high score, but for what purpose? If you're already above the highest tier, what I always tell clients, just keep doing what you're doing. Like mm-hmm. you're doing great. You don't need to go higher. You don't want to do anything, obviously, that's going to push you lower because you might cross the threshold, but don't change anything, you know? Yeah, and, exactly. and the other big question we get is clients ask like, okay, I have, uh, you know, I want to clean up my credit before I apply for a mortgage. And they, you, you touched on this about mm-hmm. closing old accounts. And sometimes they do it before they call us like, no, (laughs) that that affects your total available credit limit, um, which can potentially affect your score, if I'm not mistaken. And also you mentioned the length of time that those accounts have been open. 
Um, so it can, I, we always tell people don't do that, you know, even if it's a, if it was delinquent at some point, closing it, isn't really going to help you. Right. Cause a FICO report goes back seven years anyway. Yeah. I always advise people that when they're looking to get a mortgage, don't do any changes until they talk to either someone on my team, or I've known your team a long time. I mean, I helped train Gabby on credit. <laughs> he knows everything there is to know now. So yeah. like your team could advise them on like, don't do this, do more of that. It's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's essential to know what to do because we've seen people literally ruin their chances at getting a mortgage by doing something simple. Like, Oh, I didn't use that card. It had been open like 15 years. I just closed it. And it's like, Ooh, yeah, like you just start it too late. You can't reopen it once it's closed. That's it. It's yeah, done. That's the crazy thing is like, let's say, you know, you and I have been friends for mm, 30 years now. Yeah. So let's say that we just said, you know what, after this podcast, we're not going to be friends anymore. I lose all of that credit and credibility immediately then. So we're not going to do that. But you know. no, of course not. I'm yeah. going to cut you off. You're not going to cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I'm going to get the podcast out of you first and <laughs> steal all your knowledge. Um, uh, okay, great. So, and we're going to talk about some horror stories toward the end here. That'll be a fun way to wrap up. But, um, so we've talked about how to build the right credit profile, but, um, and I think that leads into how to maintain it. I mean, basically just doing what you're doing. If you have a good score, do what you're doing. If you don't have a good score, um, or you have some issues in the past that you want to work on, what what can people do? Like, can they engage someone like yourself and your team? Um, do, should they go to the bureaus directly if they see some mistakes on the reports? Like, what can you do to kind of fix some things if you uh, have some lead time if, and you're not applying for a mortgage because you do not want to be doing this while you're applying for a mortgage? Yeah, we always tell people, know where you stand. So you should aim to get a copy of your credit report in theory, a real one, not one from like just the credit bureaus, and then start looking it over. I mean, they could read just a chapter or two of my book, and they'll get a really good idea of what they should be looking for, and what the ideal profile looks like, and how they should get there themselves. You know, our team offers a free analysis for anyone that comes to us with one of these credit reports already, and says, tell us what, you know, what to do. We don't charge anything for that. It doesn't take our team very long. They're certified FICO professionals, which just means they're credit nerds. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so they could just, you know, say, hey, you know what? Here's where you're at. What are you trying to get to? You're good. Don't worry about it. Right. But if there were, let's say people get very caught up in, oh, there's a mistake, there's a wrong address, there's a, you know, oh, I, you know, I paid this account on time, but they're saying I didn't like those types of issues. Is that something that people will have much success if they're trying to fight or change on their own? Like if they try to go to the bureaus directly? No, because again, you have to remember that you're the, you're the product, you're the chicken in the buckets. Uh, they don't, they don't care if they hear any clucking from you. Right. Uh, you know, every, every dispute that consumers send are going to get fed into this computer system called eOscar and eOscar will scan your letters and kick out a generated response it's not actually read by a real human being and i know that that breaks people's hearts it's is like that, is that the influence of ai in the in the credit world oh that's been Absolutely. happening for it's been happening for like 15 years 
where they 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 don't have like a processing center that dumps all these letters in and someone opens it and says like oh little timmy in uh minnesota you know has a complaint let's get on that like right they, well, they plus they're for-profit organizations so they don't they don't benefit from updating your information they don't at all this is just, just it's an expense for them it's time and resources to put toward dealing with those things and they're I would imagine they get millions of those requests. Oh, they're the most complained about institution or or, or uh, industry after uh, like cell phone companies and uh, and and debt collectors, like the, right. the third add, one. Add mortgage tree, uh, trigger lead lenders who call you and harass <laughs> yeah. you. For, yeah, they're working their way up the end. list. Yeah. So we we rarely hear of people just saying, hey, I wrote to the credit bureaus and then they gave me something back. We get a lot of people that are like, hey, I'm an attorney and I put it on attorney letterhead. And I'm like, the computer doesn't care that you're an attorney and you put it on attorney letterhead. So right. it, it, you're just you're much less likely to, to have any sort of success. And the other issue is anything you say can and will be used against you. So if you and this is one of the big mistakes people make before they come to us, they say, well, I already wrote to them and I told them that, you know, I was late, but it was because I was in the hospital or this or that. And it's like, nope, you just admitted guilt. And now they're going to say, well, we're not incorrectly reporting it. You were in fact late. Doesn't matter the reason, whether you're going through a divorce or an illness or whatever the case may be, they're going to say you had to pay it on time and you knew when it was due. So you never want to write to them and just admit guilt because the computer will notate it as this person said they did it. So ignore anything that comes after that. Right. Yeah. And and I think people have the impression that when they write a letter that a human is going to read it and, and feel bad for them or try to address the situation is just it just doesn't happen. So so there are, you know, a lot of credit repair, credit restoration companies out there. But um Maybe you can talk about the differences between the good ones like yours, Regal, um, and some of the kind of fly-by-night other ones that will just, you know, not really do much of a service, but be happy to collect a fee. Yeah, you know, I've known many people in the industry throughout time, and, and there's a lot of good people that help one another. When I first started this business, people didn't know that credit repair existed, or they were like, that sounds illegal, or you know, what is this? But there's a lot of reputable people out there and the industry has gotten significantly better. We share a lot more information. There's conferences to learn how to do this in the right way. And I'll tell you without a doubt, the easiest way to tell who is a good company from who is a bad company is if before you sign up with their service, they require a consultation with someone on their team. And that consultation should not cost any money whatsoever. Without a doubt, everyone I know that operates on like a legal, ethical, let me see if I can help you sort of manner, those are the reputable ones because they will turn away the ones that aren't going to make any money. If they have like an online enrollment that just says, come and sign up no matter no matter what. And it's it's all, you know, before you speak to a human, that's that's a company that can't do much for you because they don't care. They're just like, hey, we'll take it on. And if we can get something, we can get something. And if not, we don't. Right. And they'll just send a letter and say, and which is the same thing that people could do on their own, charge you a fee and really not get anywhere because it's a computer reading it anyway. Yeah. They they need to have connections with the credit bureaus. They need to understand the laws. 
They need to be able to say, hey, this is the flaw in your automated eOSCAR system. It didn't look at this and it's required to look at this. And it's required to look at this within X number of days and in this way and prove it. And it's, you know, how we get credit repair done is not very sexy at all. It's, it's, they're never going to make a, a reality show about repairing credit because it's literally just looking at the different statutes and the laws and saying, okay, well, Fair Credit Reporting Act Section 602 says you must do this and you didn't do that. So therefore you must remove it. Right. Well, and that's, that's kind of an important point right there is that if you know what the laws are, you can make a claim through a company like yours, for example, that where you can have a legitimate reason to force them to remove a delinquency where, because they haven't followed the rules, right? They're, they're required by law to do that. If they don't follow the rules, they have to remove the delinquency, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So a lot of these companies who have people that just say, Hey, you know, my, uh, my job at the restaurant isn't going so well. I want to do credit repair. And on day one, they're sending letters, but not really have any knowledge of what they're doing. Um, and it's very similar in the mortgage industry. Unfortunately, for both of our industries, I think we we are we are the exception to the rule, but there's a very low bar. It's kind of embarrassing. On my, I'll speak for my industry. Um, there's not a lot of people that understand finance and credit and, and all these important aspects. And I'm sure there's plenty of people in your industry where there may not be, is there a licensing requirement? Like on my end, we have to pass tests and everything. So we have to be in the industry for a while before you know these things. But is there any entry requirement or could, nope. uh, you know, my dog okay. call you up and say, Hey, Hey, Anthony, this is uh, ginger, the bulldog calling. <laughs> I, I want, I need, I need a job. I know you wouldn't hire, but, um, but there are companies that would do that. Right. Oh, they absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, when the real estate crash happened and was impacting people's credit, there were a lot of like ex used car salespeople that got into the business uh, a lot of ex-mortgage people who got into it because they were just like, hey, there's literally no bar for entry here. It's just okay. you have to abide by what's called the Credit Repair Organizations Act. And most of them didn't even bother to pay attention to that. They didn't even read it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And in the mortgage industry, there what there didn't used to be a licensing requirement, but now there is. There's background checks, fingerprints, like all of the above. They wanted to make sure that people that really didn't belong advising on financial matters, weren't able to do so, but I don't think that's spilled over into the credit world. No, not, not yet. at all. Yeah. Not at all. It's the wild, wild west. Right. So so then shifting to the third kind of um, tier of this. So how does somebody like, okay, you've built this great credit profile, you're continuing to maintain it over time, but there's still things that can happen that are out of your control, like hacks, identity theft, all those types of things that can really have a major impact on you. So I want to get your opinion on how people can actually protect not just their, their credit, but their identity in general. Yeah, because identity theft is, is the biggest challenge and worry that you should have when it comes to your credit score, because that's how many people get their, their credit you know, beat up when they're a responsible person with a good job, got money, make sure that their bills are paid. They do auto pay, which is a huge, huge thing I advise people to do. But someone getting a hold of your information is so incredibly easy. We now do over 70% of our business comes down to 
protecting people's credit because it's it's identity theft is so massive. Everyone says, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to me. And I'm like, how has it not happened to you? Like every your data has been stolen a thousand times over and being sold on the dark web. So the single best thing that you can do to prevent theft yourself is to do what's called a security freeze with each of the three credit bureaus. Now, it's a simple 23-step process when you want to freeze <laughs> and unfreeze your credit. But well, that, that qualifies them to call themselves a bureau, like they are part of the government, even though they're not. The 23 simple steps. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they want to make it intentionally difficult. And, and, and they don't, the bureaus don't cooperate from, you know, between one another. So if you have a security freeze with TransUnion, you can't go to Equifax and say, hey, can you help me with that other one? They don't do that. They do that with fraud alerts, which don't do anything, but they don't do that with security freezes. So you have to go through each credit bureau's independent processes when you want to freeze or unfreeze your credit. And they want to make it a pain because guess what? When your credit's frozen, they can't sell the data. Right. It all comes back to that point, right? Because they are, this is my very first question, that they're nonprofit organizations. That answer was a clear false yeah, no. well, everything seems to be driven by, you know, where can they make a profit off of people? So if you lock your credit, they can't sell your data. If you do the opt out pre-screen, they can't sell your data, but they do still have to report. Um, right. You know, so so how do you do that? Do you do that directly at the bureaus? Is that a service that can be found through an independent company like Regal? Yeah, so you can do it on your own. Uh, they actually removed the fee to do it because, yes, of course, there was a fee to do it, you know, some years back. But in 2017, they, they removed that requirement. So it's free to do. It takes a bit of time. You have to be willing to be patient to learn the process. Know that you're not going to be sitting at a, you know, an auto dealership and you forgot to unfreeze it and know that you can do it right then and there. It's going to take time. But um you absolutely can do it. You should do it. Combining that with opt-out pre-screen and you're really good to go. But if you want to pay for a service, honestly, I created that as a service because, you know, I work with a lot of the, the rich and famous people out there in the sports and entertainment world. And when we figured out that security freezes were the thing to do, I handed the process to one of these, you know, business managers who looks after these these very wealthy clients and they were like we're not going to do that like that's liability it's it's a headache it's a process like why don't we just pay you to do it so i created that as a service and now we're working on making it into a mobile application and we've just been you know kissing kissing as many of the people we know in the credit bureaus to allow them or allow us to do it because they don't want to they don't want to make it easy to do that they really right. don't and they don't want to create opportunities for outside companies to be able to control things because then, again, it limits their ability to sell data. So they have no vested interest in laying out a red carpet for, for people like you or for consumers, for that matter. So um, so these services like Credit Karma, LifeLock, like what do they do? Like Credit Karma, I think, is more of a reporting site but but lifelock like that's that's a big one they do a lot of advertising oh we'll lock down your credit and we'll insure you up to a million dollars or whatever they mm -hmm. make these claims on but can you tell us why those are kind of bogus yeah it's because they're all designed to notify you 
after theft happens. And then it's up to you to clean it up. So imagine an alarm system that's always delayed. It's not in real time. It's not like, you know, someone applies for credit right then in your name and then instantly ping, you get a notification. It's up to the credit bureaus to then relay that information. And there's a delay. Sometimes the delay is a couple days. But even then, once you're notified, hey, was this you? No, it wasn't me. And then they're like, okay, well, now you got to go and deal with it. They, the commercials make it look like oh, we'll get on it. We have a team of lawyers sitting around a desk that's going to deal with this for you. But the reality is the credit bureaus, as well as LifeLock, have paid fines for falsely advertising that credit monitoring will protect you and that they will help you recover after the theft happens to you. LifeLock, in fact, paid a fine of $100 million, the biggest in... in uh, in history for falsely advertising that they prevent theft and that they help you recover it because it was a second time offense. Oh, and they also added an extra amount to it because they weren't adequately protecting consumer data, which is kind of a problem when you're giving them your social security number, dates of birth, credit card numbers, and all that sort of thing. So, <laughs> so they, were, they were having their own data breach with all the information that you're giving to them when they're supposed to life lock your credit. Yeah. So, I mean, a hundred million dollar fine. That's not just like a, hey, you know, you did wrong. You need to pay up. That's like, we're going to make this a, like, this is significant. We're sending a message. You really need to pay and suffer the, the, the harm of this. But it, it, it didn't really impact them a whole lot. They sold for like $2 billion not long after that, but they still offer the same thing. It's only notifying you after the theft happens. Right. Get a security freeze. You know, if you want to save on money, do it yourself. That's the best thing that you possibly could do. Uh, Score Sense, Credit Karma, all these other ones, they're all credit monitoring. They all do the exact same thing. They all buy their data from the three credit bureaus. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter which one you go through. They're all doing the exact same thing. Right. And all getting the data after the event has already happened when your, your house has already been robbed, maybe two days right. ago. Yeah, while you were exactly. enjoying your vacation. Um, it may have happened, you know, a while back. So here, here's your notification. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no go deal with it. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, exactly. And they're all the same. I mean, they're all all these companies are out there to make a profit, right? And and the data can't really be in real time. There's too many, probably too many data points to get from the inquiry to the bureaus to the credit karma or score sense or lifelock. And then to the consumer to actually block a real-time inquiry for credit. So what is your, uh, and this is not meant to be like a pitch for your business. Obviously, that's not it. But I think you guys have something that's really unique that is so different than all the ones that are mass advertised out there. But like, what does your service do? It basically locks down people's ability to even run your credit, right? Yeah, so the security freeze will, will do that. It'll stop anyone from being able to run credit. And if you can't run credit, credit can't be issued. So like you can do a pre-qualification based on soft credit polls, but you can't actually give the loan until the credit is pulled. And every major lender is going to be the exact same way, whether it's for a credit card, a student loan, auto loan, whatever the case may be. So in addition to that, we 
opt them out of getting those pre-screened mailers and calls and things like that. We register them on do not call.gov because that says if they weren't already on there, it's like, hey, don't solicit me on, on my cell phones and phone numbers. Yeah. Then we also have certified FICO professionals that monitor the credit. So credit monitoring is, is useful to get an idea of where your score is moving. But one key thing I'll say is if you're looking to sign up with a company, especially the free ones, you need to be looking to see how they're making their money off of you because nothing is really free. Again, if it's free, you're the chicken in the buckets, you're the product and you want to see how they're using that information. So someone like Credit Karma, it's a genius model. They're like, hey, we'll give you free credit monitoring, but they are literally selling every bit of data that they possibly can on you. And they're like, tie in your bank accounts, tie in your, your, all your assets and things like that, because then they can sell that information more accurately. Uh, In addition to like to a lender who's getting that information, if you could, you know, have some knowledge of the fact that, oh, this client not only is inquiring about a mortgage, but they actually have a good amount of money in a bank account. Um, That's a more qualified lead. So they use that data to try to feed people in the mortgage industry who aren't getting their business from referrals. And they're just basically trying to cherry pick uh, leads off of the credit bureau's activity. So I can see why that data would be important. Oh yeah. Yeah. But the concept is like, just think about like, okay, if they're not charging you for the service, obviously they're making money somehow. Right. So you mentioned the, I love your chicken in a bucket uh, example. It's you are, you're basically feeding that engine to sell your information to someone else who then wants to harass you about whatever mortgages or credit cards or, you know, anything else. And maybe it's worth it for some people. They say, look, I'll, I'll take the harassment in order to get something for free. Um, but in addition, our service also helps people recover from, we've identified 31 different flavors of identity theft. So that could be someone getting a hold of your credit or debit card or someone that files, you know, remember at the beginning of COVID, everyone was talking about, oh, they're filing unemployment insurance against me. Like we deal with that stuff or yeah. filing we've, social security. Uh, we've benefits. seen one recently where clients have come to us and said, you know, my tax returns are kind of on hold because somebody filed a fraudulent tax yeah. return in yeah. my name. And they do that because then they put their bank account information in where you would get the refund to. So they steal, basically steal a fake refund. Um, but the problem on the mortgage end is we have to verify income with the IRS with something called a 45060 or a tax transcript. So if the government has your information locked down because there's fear of fraud, that creates a major issue with trying to get um, trying to get the mortgage through to the closing. So we've seen that come up more often. I'm sure there are they're getting more and more savvy as far as how to steal people's information, but that's one that we come across periodically. Every day, you know, and yeah, we help people deal with that situation because dealing with the IRS is never fun and takes a long time and they're very yes. busy. Right. And the, and the credit bureaus aren't going to be much help either. <laughs> yeah. But we're so, not for everybody. I mean, we, we really cater to, to the people that have, um, you know, some sort of celebrity or, or, a you know, pretty significant net worth. Uh, so that, that is something to keep in mind that like, we, we, we do all this stuff for people because someone who is on tour and busy doing their thing, they don't want to have to deal with this. They don't have time. So they right. pay us to just say, 
I don't want to ever think about my credit. If something happens, you need to take care of it. And that's right. what we're designed to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I don't know that uh, maybe I'm uh, developing a new business plan for you on the spot here, but I think, I mean, I'm thinking about this for myself. Like I work in an industry that involves credit and like, I don't want any of that to happen to me either. So I think this is more accessible to the general public than you give it credit for. Um, but what is like, what, if somebody wanted their credit locked, what, what is that just ballpark? What is something like that cost? 1500 a year. And that's yeah. uh, $200 a year for kids under 18. Cause yeah, identity theft among kids is actually growing at a huge rate because they, yeah. you can't get them to clean their rooms. They're never going to check their credit. Right. So <laughs> right. It, Wouldn't you even shouldn't think to do that. Yeah. You shouldn't be able to, to steal a kid's credit, but trust me, it's very easy. And and their data can get sold as well. I, I signed my kids up on the uh, opt-out pre-screen as well, because my eight-year-old son is getting solicitations for credit cards somehow. I'm not sure how or why, but I guess the reason is that his name and information and address is in the pool of data that is being sold. So it makes yeah. sense, but that kind of is a perfect example of like, how these data-driven models are are spitting out solicitations, and you know, um, hopefully he won't uh, respond. We'll, we'll rip those up before he knows what the heck they are. He's like, I do want a line of credit at Toys R Us. <laughs> right, exactly. As long as it's tied to my credit card, you have no problem with that. Yeah. Um, so one thing, one area we see that really can impact credit a lot is when people are either joining forces, let's say getting married, um, mm -hmm. or if they're getting divorced. So maybe you can talk briefly about like what people should watch out for in those situations where they're sort of merging credit profiles and starting to do things jointly or authorize user accounts. And then also when they're splitting up, I think we run this into this a lot where uh, a divorcing couple will say, I have, you know, we have a, an agreement that says that the other person is supposed to pay the mortgage, but we applied for the mortgage together. Yeah. So how, 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 tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when you're joining forces, the key thing to know is that any debt that you apply for jointly, they're going to look at whoever has the lower credit score and use that score to qualify you. They used to look at, and I'm sure you remember these days, they used to say, whoever makes the most money, right. we're going to use their score. But now they just say, whoever has the lower score, we're going to use that to give you the rate or to do the yeah. qualification. So a key thing to know before you get married, look at each other's credit reports, analyze it or have a pro analyze it and say, what do we need to do to improve it? Because whoever's the weaker link is going to hold you down. Now, on the flip side, if things don't work out, there's a divorce decree that states who's responsible for what. The banks and the credit card companies do not care that things didn't work out with you. <laughs> uh, you know, this reminds me of the, the Goodfellas line where they're like, oh, you know, he, he, uh, he was tweeting pictures to, uh, you know, some young woman that he shouldn't be. I don't care. Pay me. You know, oh, you know, the, the weather was really bad. I don't care. Pay me. You know, you, you, your love fell apart after 20 years. I don't care. Pay me. Yeah. So that's the way the 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 banks are going to look at it. And they don't care if a divorce decree says, you know, he's responsible for the mortgage. They're going to say, well, who applied for it? Both of you? 
well, then that's what matters. So even though the divorce decree will say he's got to pay the mortgage, if he misses a payment, it's going to impact both of your credit profiles and there's nothing anyone can do to help you. Yeah, exactly. So that, and that's an important one. That's one we run into all the time because people want to say, well, I'm not responsible for the payment. So don't count it against me in my debt to income ratio when I'm qualifying for a new home that I want to purchase, but you're still signed on that debt. Right. So, and and there are ways we can work around it depending on the payment history of who's been making the payments for a period of time. Um, But it gets tricky. And it sometimes is the difference between being able to, uh, you know, to uh, qualify for a loan or not. Um, So that's an important one. Divorce in particular is one that we see comes up a lot for our clients. Not that we cater specifically to divorce clients, but it's just you know, divorce is an unfortunately common thing, and we do see those types of issues pop up often. Um, so we're we're going to be running short on time here. So I want to. This is where the fun begins. So I want to hear the worst thing you've ever seen somebody do, and I'll I'll share a story of my own as well. But what what's the dumbest or worst thing you've seen somebody do to screw up their credit? I'll tell you this is the most common one, which is when you know they are applying for a mortgage and something they are aware then of like oh hey you got a collection on here they pay it and the reason why that impacts the score is because it it, on a credit report when it comes to like how much something impacts your score and a collection in particular doesn't matter how long ago it happened it doesn't matter the dollar amount could be small or big doesn't matter whether it was a medical debt or a cable box you didn't return The only thing that matters is when the credit bureaus last updated the information. And when you pay it, it updates the information. So it plummets their score. So a lot of times a responsible person would say, oh, I just became aware that I owe this debt for $50 for a medical copay that my stupid insurance company didn't pay. And then boom, score is toast. There's nothing that any credit repair company can do for you after you've essentially just admitted guilt and said, yep, I did it, paid it, you're, you're toast. That's the most common issue. And that's the like worst thing because there's there's nothing that anyone can do to help you. Right. And heaven forbid, if you're about to apply for a mortgage at that moment, because that could have a significant impact on the rate or maybe your ability to get a mortgage at all. Um, so I had one, uh, a client years ago who was moving from New York City, where a car isn't necessarily necessary, moving to a suburb, buying a really nice home. His qualifications were really tight, like to the penny. We got him the maximum loan amount we could get him. Um, and about 10 days before closing, he decided that when he moved into his new home, he was going to need a Porsche. So he went and leased a $1,200 a month payment at that time. It's probably twice that now. Uh, leased his Porsche and lenders check, do do a, like a credit refresh right before closing to see if you've added any new accounts. This guy was so tight that that actually impacted his ability to get a loan. He ended up having to return the car, yeah. um, which had all sorts of fees and penalties and everything because he was probably going to go back and lease it again after closing, but had he waited 10 days or whatever it was, five days before closing or after closing to do it, none of this would have ever been an issue. The guy clearly could afford the car, but qualifications are, you know, and someone's self-employed, you look at tax returns, doesn't always show the, the full story. 
Um, but that's that's my horror story. But um, we do have a couple of questions here that I wanted to make sure we get to before we wrap up. Um, a question from Karen. When a company reports to you that their data has been breached and your information may have been compromised, they usually offer complimentary credit monitoring and identity restoration for 24 months. Is this something we should engage with? It's a great question. Yeah, typically they ask uh, or they, they offer it for 12 to 24 months. Most common is 12. The reason they do that is because it's really cheap to do. They find that only about 3% of people who get that letter actually take them up on it. And again, credit monitoring isn't going to do anything for you. So if you get one of those notifications, let it serve as a reminder to freeze your credit. That's the only thing that's going to matter. Don't do the free credit monitoring. The companies that, that offer that free monitoring are counting on you renewing it because a fair number of people do and then start paying for it. So, right. nah. And then your data is getting sold, right? And your While data. you're monitoring it, yeah. you're, you're in that churning of data. Yeah. Um, and you're a data point. And uh, so you just you're just adding fuel to their fire and making them money in different ways. Exactly. Exactly. So don't yeah. do it. Yeah, I, th I think a better way is what you described about locking your credit down, um, as opposed to trying to hire a company to monitor it to, again, tell you after your house has been burglarized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Anthony, I mean, this has been amazing. I was really looking forward to this session, not just because we go back 30 years, but because I know you're a wealth of knowledge and there are, we deal with this every day. There are so many myths out there about how credit works and why you know companies offer these free services and what they're actually doing behind the scenes. And um, you've given a really, really great overview of that. And I'm, I'm very appreciative and uh, I owe you a beer. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's been really helpful and we're going to get this information out there to people. Um, if they want to reach out to you or to Regal, what's the best way for them to find you guys? So the best way is to send an email to info at regalcredit.com. And depending on their time zone, they'll get sent to someone in that area. That's a certified FICA professional and is willing to give them a free consultation just to say, Hey, tell me your scenario, your situation take a look at your credit, see if you're in good shape. We highly recommend that when people are looking to get a mortgage, especially in this market, because you got to have the tip, 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 top, perfect credit profile, best score possible in order to qualify for that best rate. Uh, they they got to have that super sexy credit. They need to have a pro take a look at it and make sure they're, they're, they're good to go. Yeah. And the earlier people do that, the better, you know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, we always tell people to try to prepare ahead of time. Don't, you know, call us after you've found the dream home where we can't change anything or fix anything that needs fixing. So uh, the the more of a head start you get, the better. Um, but that was that was a really, really great talk, Anthony. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the On The Mark podcast. Wherever you're listening, please leave a review. And if you're enjoying it, please share it with others. You can also follow us on our social accounts and find us at markmyman.com to connect directly. Be sure to take a look at the show notes for all the important links, and I'll see you next time.